please turn in your Bibles to the prophet Zechariah for our Old Testament lesson this morning. Zechariah chapter 9, beginning with verse 9. Zechariah is speaking after the return from the exile to direct and encourage. God's people as they came back to a mess, as they came back to a devastated land. And this is part of his message to them. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow, I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Thus far, the reading of God's word in the Old Covenant. Please turn now in the New Testament to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. Beginning with verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it. And we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. 
And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the, our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we are grateful for this opportunity to gather this morning in your name. We have come in response to your call. And so we pray that as we are here, as we turn our eyes to you, that you would open our eyes, that we might behold Christ, that you would unplug our ears, that we might hear him speaking to our hearts this morning. Give us faith to receive all that he has for us. And may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The two passages that we have just read, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament, are two of the passages most closely associated with the events on the day which we call Palm Sunday, which today is being celebrated all over the world. If we truly wish to understand what the Lord is teaching us in these passages, it is important that we not only ask the right questions, but that we not settle for half or incomplete answers. An incomplete answer can steer us astray as much as a wrong answer. Because the part of the answer which is true could lead us to think we have the whole answer when we have only the part, which would then prevent us or hinder us from looking for any more to the answer because we assume we already have it all. For example, if, if we ask, why did Jesus ride on a donkey into Jerusalem. It would be very natural for us to say, well, in order to fulfill the prophecy of the prophet Zechariah. And that's true, but that's not the whole answer. It's, it's incomplete. As we shall see, Jesus rode the donkey into Jerusalem to declare fully, publicly, and unambiguously that he was God's messianic king. He was not just trying to fulfill prophecy, he was publicly declaring that he was King Jesus, that God had sent into the world. Now, if we broaden the question and ask, why did Jesus come into the world? Many of us would immediately say, why? To pay the penalty for our sins, that we might be forgiven which is true as far as it goes, but it, it doesn't go far enough. 
Christ came into the world to establish God's kingdom, which humankind had rejected in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned against God by disobeying his word. You see, one important aspect of the establishment of God's kingdom was indeed to have Christ pay the penalty for our sins in order to obtain our salvation. But that's not the whole story. You will not fully understand salvation or the Christian life apart from recognizing the kingdom of Christ. That's why it is important, you see, that first... Christ came into the world to establish his kingdom. Christ came into the world to establish his kingdom. Beginning with verse 2, we read that Jesus said to his disciples, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. There was nothing coincidental about this. This wasn't just an act of Jesus' omniscience, of, of knowing what was going on in the world and what animals were where and what they would see. No, I don't think so. Jesus prepared in advance for his entry into Jerusalem so that he clearly would be seen as fulfilling Zechariah 9, as the king coming to you gentle and righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. He self-consciously identified as the messianic king because his entire life had been pointing to this moment, to his kingship. From the beginning to the end, when we look through the gospel accounts, the message that probably rang out even more than forgiveness was that of God's kingdom. It began when the angel Gabriel came to Mary in Luke 1.32 to declare of Jesus that the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. When the angel came to Mary, he came speaking of a king a king who would rule in the world. In Matthew 2, verse 2, wise men came from the east into downtown Jerusalem, and when they got there, what did they ask? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They were looking for a king. 
In Matthew 3, 2, John the baptizer came preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. John was announcing the coming of the king. And Jesus himself, when he shortly thereafter began his own ministry, as we read in Mark 1, verse 15, what did he declare? The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew 9:35, having already discussed a significant portion of Jesus' ministry among the people in Galilee, Matthew pauses to summarize what has happened up to this point. And he does so by saying that Jesus was teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And immediately after that, he says that Jesus appointed the twelve to go out and to preach. With these instructions, proclaim as you go, saying that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew 12, 28, Jesus was attacked by the Pharisees because he was casting demons out of demon-possessed people. And they were offended that he would assert that kind of spiritual power. They said that he must have been doing it with Satan's help. And Jesus said, how can Satan cast out demons? A house divided against itself will fall. And then he said, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom has come upon you. And when in Matthew 13, Matthew shows us that Jesus was beginning to teach in parables. How are the parables described again and again? Almost every one begins, the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. What does he want us to understand? That a kingdom is coming. And we need to be ready for it so that we will recognize when it has come. And then when the apostles, for the very first time in Matthew 16, the first time they suddenly realize who Jesus is, who Jesus is, and and in response to Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What does Jesus do? He commends their response and he says, I give you the keys of the kingdom. The keys of the kingdom. And then Jesus enters Jerusalem. As we saw in our text this morning deliberately identifying as the king of whom Zechariah spoke. During his time in Jerusalem that last week before he would die, what does he do? He continues to teach and to preach. 
And what does he tell them? He tells them more parables. Parables of what? Parables of the kingdom of God. Whether it was the ten virgins, the ten minas, the wedding banquet, the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. And then they come to the Last Supper, the Passover meal. And what does Jesus say twice during the course of that meal in Luke 22, verses 16 and 18? He says, I will not eat and drink again until the kingdom of heaven comes. And then he says to them, I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he was arrested. He was taken to the chief priest. The chief priest sent him over to Herod or to a pilot. Pilate sent him to Herod. Herod sent him back to Pilate. And when he was brought before Pilate in John 18, Pilate asked him the question. He says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, well, you say that I am. Pilate was unnerved. He sought to release Jesus. And you know what he said? Shall I release to you the king of the Jews? And the crowd, you know, shouted, no, they wanted Barabbas, the criminal, instead. Finally, Pilate caved. He washed his hands of the whole matter. But when Jesus was placed on the cross, Pilate, put a sign above his head that said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. From the beginning of his earthly life until his crucifixion, the message in the Gospels is that Jesus was the coming King. That Jesus had come to establish his kingdom, God's kingdom. But that's not the end of it. When he rose from the grave, Luke tells us in Acts chapter 1 verse 3, that in the 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension into heaven, that Jesus was proclaiming the kingdom of of God. And when Luke ends the book of Acts, we see that Paul is in prison in Rome for two years. And what is he doing during the two years? Luke writes, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching them about the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, when Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, speaks of our salvation 
in chapter 1, verse 13. He describes it as God having delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the one he loves. Salvation is being transferred into a kingdom, the kingdom of Christ. Yes, because Jesus died in our place, our sins are forgiven. But the meaning of what he is doing is much bigger than just forgiving my individual sins. It's about establishing his worldwide kingdom. You see, if we only focus on my salvation from my sins, what am I focusing on? I'm focusing on me and what is to my benefit as an individual. doesn't matter about the rest of you. As long as I, my sins are forgiven, I'm okay. But Jesus has a much bigger vision. If we instead focus on Christ's kingdom as the framework for our salvation, the emphasis is on the king and his rule over his people with us as members of his kingdom, not just as individuals floating around enjoying salvation, but as being brought together as his people under his kingly rule. That means that the key question that you and I need to ask ourselves is this. Do I see Jesus as having come to establish me in my kingdom to free me so that I can live however I want to live? Or did Jesus come to free me from my sins so that I might live for him in his kingdom? Did Jesus come just to establish me in my own wants and desires, or did he come to bring me under his kingly rule as a member of his kingdom? I hope by now that you see from this very brief analysis of his entire life and ministry that the correct answer is the latter answer. But my suspicion is that most, if not all, of us live as though the former were true. We take our salvation and run with it and think now we have a pass to do whatever we want to do because we have a Savior. Christ has come to establish his kingdom. That's what Palm Sunday is all about. But next we need to see that the kingdom of Christ has a distinctive character. We see this immediately in Jesus choosing to ride on the donkey. It wasn't just the fulfillment of prophecy. It wasn't just his declaration that he was, in fact, establishing his kingdom. It also sent a message about the character of his kingdom. A donkey was a work animal, a beast of burden to carry things. And in that sense, 
It, a donkey is a symbol of peace. It's not dangerous. In Zechariah 9, verse 10, having described in verse 9 the king coming, humble and mounted on a donkey, he says in, in verse 10 that he shall speak peace to the nations, even as his rule will be from sea to sea. So a donkey is a symbol of peace. A stallion, on the other hand, is a war horse, bred and designed for battle. In contemporary terms, a donkey is a pickup truck. A war stallion is a tank or a Black Hawk helicopter. Moves quickly, maximum destruction. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that donkey, what happened? People waved palm branches. They took off their coats and put them on the ground in front of him. As it were, rolling out the red carpet. Indeed, it, it, it was essentially an act of worship as he rode into town. More recently, when ISIS terrorists would drive into a town, they would speed in their vehicles with guns firing, waving their military equipment, and frightening the people into submission. Two very different kinds of kingdoms. When Jesus appeared before Pilate, you will remember when he was asked if he was a king in John 18, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. I could have summoned legions of angels and they would have come for me. Except that his kingdom was not of this world. Rather than ordering his followers to lay down their lives to protect his kingdom and to save his life, it was Jesus the king who gave up his life in order to rescue and save his people. kingdom of Christ has a distinctive character of sacrifice, of service, of peace. In Matthew 5.20, Jesus warned the people that your righteousness must exceed that of the, the scribes and the Pharisees, as impeccable to detail as they were in their effort to worship God. If they wanted to enter into God's kingdom, they had to be greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. But in Matthew 21, verse 31, Jesus says the tax collectors and prostitutes would get into heaven ahead of the chief priests and the elders of the people. In Matthew 18, verses 1 and 2, Jesus takes a child and sets him forth as a model of those 
who would be part of his kingdom. Not the rich, of whom just a few verses later, and uh, actually not a few verses later, it's a different book. In Luke 18, 24, he says, it will be very difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. If you were going to establish a kingdom, what would you do? Take a little child running around or, or taking that uh, adult with lots of money and power and influence? But you see, the character of the kingdom of Christ is very different. Indeed, the values of Christ's kingdom are almost upside down from the values of the world. It's not an external trappings that Christ sets forth his kingdom. But he does so quietly in the midst of God's people. As Jesus says in Luke 17, 20 and 21, he says, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It's already there. It's been slowly coming. Well, how? Well, what matters to God is not power and prestige, but rather a life lived in submission to the king. That's how we show that the kingdom of Christ has come as we live as faithful followers of King Jesus. The Apostle Paul observes in Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. It's not one big feast celebrating the power and authority of this worldly king. No, he says, it's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what... The kingdom of heaven is about. You might remember the parable of the unmerciful servant that Jesus tells in Matthew 18. I think Seth referred to that this morning. What's the whole point of that parable? The master forgives a debt that was over 100,000 years of labor, 164,000 years, I think he said. That's how long it would take you to earn that kind of debt. And, and the master forgives him, but then he turns around, and for three months, that from one of his fellow servants, he has him thrown in jail. And the one who threw his fellow servant in jail is the one who is then put away forever because there's no way he's going to live 164,000 years to pay a debt that he can't even earn because he's in jail. It's about forgiveness. That's what the kingdom of God is about. It's about forgiveness. In the parable of the workers of the vineyard, in Matthew 20. You'll remember that parable. The man goes out and he hires some day laborers early in the morning and promises to pay them an amount. And about 10 in the morning, he hires a few more. And at noon, he hires a few more. At 3 in the afternoon, 
he hires a few more. And at 4.30, he hires a few more. And at the end of the day, as he's giving out the payment, he gave a denarius to each worker that worked that day. And the ones that worked all day were furious. But the master said, didn't I offer you work for one denarius? Why are you upset about my kindness to others if I've been fair to you? You see, it's the kingdom of God is about grace and forgiveness. Not about power and brute authority. What stands out is God's kindness and grace. It is this unworldly character of Jesus' kingdom, selflessness instead of selfishness, that is distinctive of Christ's kingdom. The church's greatest temptation is to let the world's power structures determine the character of how we live on earth. The folly of letting the world set the agenda is portrayed for us time and again throughout the Old Testament and indeed throughout the book of Kings. There's something curious that keeps on happening. God comes and rescues his people, his king, fighting against a foreign king. So now his king has defeated the enemies. And what's the first thing that king does? Is he takes the idols of the king that he just conquered and brings them in. Apparently thinking, well, this will give me a little bit more power. I have God, but now I'll draw on their power from their gods. Well, their gods didn't do a very good job of helping them, did they? But you know, we do the same thing. We take the foolish values of the world, thinking that those will help us. And we just start to live like the world. And it suddenly becomes about us, not about Christ and his rule, but it's about the world. Earthly kings, or in our case here, we're not real fond of kings. We sort of had a little revolution to let the world know what we thought of kings. But earthly kings, or in our case presidents, are much more interested to build a legacy than to give their lives and offer service. What was the very first thing that happened after President Trump was inaugurated into office? He sat at the Resolute desk and he signed a whole series of executive orders, undoing a lot of stuff that President Obama had set into place. What's the very first thing that Joe Biden did after he was inaugurated? He went into the Oval Office, sat at the Resolute Desk, and signed a whole bunch of executive orders, even more than President Trump signed. What was the very first thing, or one of the first things, that Jesus did when he rode into Jerusalem after declaring his kingship? 
He went to the temple and cleaned out the money changers and all the commerce that was happening in the courts of the Gentiles so that the Gentiles could have access to worship. It wasn't about exercising brute power over foreign enemies or competing administrations. It was about making sure that common people could worship. The followers of earthly leaders expect to be appointed to positions of power when their candidate wins and comes into power. As we see time and again in the gospel, the followers of Jesus were sent out with not much more than the clothes on their back and told to go to the common people and tell them that the kingdom of God was here. The kingdom of Christ has a distinctive character that's very different than the kingdoms of this world. But finally we see that the kingdom of Christ has a distinctive people. In Mark 11, verses 8 and 9, we read that many people spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches they cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These were not the wealthy people. These were not the power brokers. These were the common people coming into Jerusalem in order to worship at the festival. Ordinary travelers on their way to sing God's praises. You might remember that the power brokers didn't want any part of this in Luke 1939, as the children were singing their praises, and I love the way we're starting to hear the voices of our children when we sing God's praises again. Sing your hearts out, girls and boys. That delights the Lord. Some of the adults didn't like that, though, back then on that particular day, and they, they told Jesus to shut them up. You remember what Jesus said, if if these little ones stop singing my praises, the rocks are going to sing my praises. The kingdom of Christ has a distinctive people, little children, people who were unworthy, who become the worthy members of his kingdom. Uh, in Matthew 22, the parable of the wedding feast, he says, beginning in verse 2, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. These were the leaders of society. This was the king was having a big to-do, and he expected the leaders of his people to come, and they blew him off. They paid no attention, verse 5, went off one to his farm, another his business. The rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. 
Verse 7, the king was angry and sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. They were not worthy. According to the world's eyes, they were worthy, but they were not worthy. He says, go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. Go find the ordinary people walking about their daily business and you invite them. These are the ones who are worthy, not the ones that the world would have thought were worthy. It's those the world considers unworthy that are worthy citizens of the kingdom of Christ. Maybe you feel not very worthy, but if Christ has called you and Christ has invited you, dear friend, doesn't matter what the rest of the world thinks. You're worthy. In Luke 18, 15 to 17, Jesus says that the defining characteristic of his people is not maturity and sophistication, but the faith of a child. We read, now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Now it's not the Pharisees, it's his own disciples saying, get the kids out of here. But Jesus called them to him saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. How does that make you feel? You have to become like a child in order to enter the kingdom of God. You have to set aside all your pretensions about how important you are and just with a simple faith accept whatever you're given. You have to become like children. It's not what you can achieve on your own, but rather will you trust the king for whatever he'll give you? Just as a child, trust their parents for whatever their parents can give. In the Beatitudes, in Matthew 5, on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that the kingdom belongs to those who are poor in spirit and who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Not quite the kinds of characteristics you would think would be counted for those who are in God's eternal kingdom, Then again, those who belong to Christ's kingdom pursue kingdom priorities. In Matthew 6, 33, Jesus tells his disciples, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things, you're worried about food and clothing, housing, all these things will be provided for you. You see, kingdom life is not marked by an accumulation of wealth and possessions but by a life of service in the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Not wealth, not power, not influence, not real estate, but love 
pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere heart. It is these kind of people who pray kingdom prayers. Who pray kingdom prayers. That's what Jesus taught his disciples when they wanted to know how to pray. He says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. What we pray is a reflection of what we prioritize. What we pray is a reflection of what we prioritize. And Jesus gives this this model prayer, and the order is very significant. First, he says, pray for God's glory. Hallowed be your name. Secondly, pray for God's kingdom. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And after you've sought God's glory, and after you sought the furtherance of his kingdom, then pray for yourselves. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation. Too often we have this completely upside down, don't we? We pray for what we need get by each day, the emergency of the moment. And then if we remember, we might throw in something about God's kingdom or God's glory at the end of our prayers. So easy to do that. And it's not wrong to pray for our needs. Christ invites us, but but our prayers are, are meant to reflect the kingdom values, which means we ought to focus first on our king when we pray. And then bring to him the needs that we have every reason to expect he, as our king, will be pleased to meet. Jesus is not saying that God's not interested in our personal needs, but rather he's letting us know that his people are concerned first and foremost for God's glory and for his kingdom. Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He has come into the world to establish his kingdom, redeeming for himself a people who are his very own. But his kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. It has a distinctive counterintuitive character and distinctive counterintuitive people. Those who succeed in his kingdom are not what we look to in this world as the models of success. Friends, even this morning, King Jesus is calling sinners to leave this world of darkness and enter into his kingdom of light. To flee the bondage of sin and to find the freedom of his grace. 
Jesus was entering Jerusalem in order to die for his people so that they might be free. Could it be that Christ is calling you this morning into his kingdom? Bow your hearts before him. Cast off your crown of pride and self-rule. Give up your sin and rebellion. What is it really getting you? Nothing. Instead, embrace the forgiveness and life that King Jesus offers only through faith in him. Now, those of you who have already come to put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, have you forgotten that he is your king? That you are under his rule? Have you unwittingly become more focused on establishing your own kingdom instead of participating in his? The king has come, and one day he's coming again. He promised he would return. And when he does, he will claim his own and constitute his kingdom as the only kingdom on earth. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and believe the good news. May Christ, the risen King, give you all the grace to repent of your own kingdom building and instead to follow the kingdom of Christ. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ, Holy Father and Holy Spirit, we acknowledge how easy it is to pursue our own agendas, to try to build our own kingdoms within your kingdom, and it doesn't work, Lord. Christ has come as King. And there is no other king. Humble our hearts and help us to rejoice that a king has come who truly cares for his people. A king who has sacrificed himself for his people instead of using his people for his own advantage. Deepen our love for Christ. May our hearts thrill to hear the praises that were given him on that day so long ago. May we look forward to the praises that we shall offer him when he comes again. When we shall live openly under his rule forever. Please humble our hearts. Give us joy that the King has come. And give us eagerness as we wait for his coming again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.